The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage. And man, we are very, very, very glad you're worshiping with us this morning. If you were here last week, we had a guest preacher. I was out of town, but I got to watch online as Chad Robichaux came and, and shared with us an incredible story, an incredible journey. Chad is the founder of Mighty Oaks, a ministry that we have here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And we got to peer in last Sunday and listen to the story of a man who met Jesus through incredible circumstances. Today, we're going to be back in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 16 through 26. We're going to finish up this book. Uh, if you've been around for this series, we've journeyed through the first uh, three and a half chapters. We, we saw the creation account in chapter one, and then in chapter two, we, we kind of get this zoom in look at, at day six, the creation of, of mankind, the institution of marriage, and then we journeyed into chapter three, which is the heartbreaking fall of humankind and, and God's judgment oracle over humankind, and then Adam and Eve get cast out of the garden. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jeremy brought us into chapter four. And as we're into chapter 4, we saw the first generation uh, coming after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And we, we saw this heartbreaking uh, story unfold as the first human born, Cain, became a murderer. Don't let the weight of that just pass you by. We sometimes get used to these biblical stories. But think about that. The first human born was a murderer. This week we're going to be... In verses 16 through 26, we're going to learn about Cain, this first human. We're going to learn today about his family line. We're going to read about this, this genealogy uh, and this family line that rose up out of Cain. Let's begin together in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. It's Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zilha. Ada bore Jabal. He was father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zilha also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, as we turn our attention to your word God, as we read uh, of this, this kind of heartbreaking culture, civilization, genealogy rising up, this godless society that we read in Genesis chapter 4, God, would you, would you just stir within us by the power of your spirit, God, to hear and to see and to respond to the things you want us to hear and see and respond to? God, would you enable us through the preaching of your word to hear your voice? 
uh, over this place today, God, would you draw our eyes to the hope of your son Jesus, the hope of the gospel. God, as we, as we look at the high human drama in this text, God, may we not take our eyes off of the truth of your sovereign, uh, present, divine um, control over all things, even when we read of tragedy and difficulty. So, Father, meet us in this place. Open our eyes. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a season in your life where you kind of intentionally just turned your back on God? As you think back through the course of your life, and maybe you're in this place today, where you just said to yourself, you know what, I just, I just think I want to walk away. I, just don't, I don't know if I want to do this right now for, for one reason or another. I can remember for me, I was a young man. I, I had had my heart broken in a relationship that ended poorly, and I was just kind of mad at the world. I, I left college to pursue a relationship, and it didn't work, and I was just mad. And I remember in the summer of 1995, Promise Keepers was the thing that was just rocking men's ministry across the country. They were filling stadiums, and people were gathering. And my father and my brother and I decided to go to Seattle to a Promise Keepers gathering gathering at uh, the kingdom. And I was mad. And I remember going, and I was getting ready to go, b- go back to college. It would have been my junior year of college. And I went to this Promise Keepers uh, uh, gathering, and I was pierced and convicted, and the speakers, uh, you know, they resonated with me, and I, and I knew that God was calling me into obedience to himself. And I can remember sitting there in the kingdom with 66,000 men, and I remember saying, okay, I have a crossroads here. I can either because there was this little card they gave you, this commitment you made to being a man of God. I'm looking at these commitments, and I knew this is what God wanted for me, but I also knew that I just wanted to go party. I wanted to just, like, I wanted to just, just rage because I was just mad at the way life had turned out. I just wanted to indulge in whatever I could indulge in, and I can remember looking at that card and just saying in my heart in the kingdom in 1995, nope, and I put that card away, and I walked into a year and a half of debauchery willfully turning my back on God, doing the things that I wanted to do. I made a choice, like the text says of Cain. I went away from the presence of the Lord. And man, as I look back at my life now, and those scars that have had reverberating influences in my life, here we are 26 years later or whatever, um, the biggest regrets of my life are contained within that year and a half. In those years of debauchery, I learned firsthand that life apart from the Lord is no life at all. Life apart from the Lord is death. Over the years, I've watched in horror as a a pastor when people have have just kind of walked away from God. And I I see it often. And, and, And there's many reasons why people will kind of willfully go away from the presence of the Lord. Sometimes I see people enticed away by by false teaching. There's something in our personality as human beings where we want secret knowledge. And if we feel like this teacher or this movement or this author or this speaker or this personality has a secret knowledge that no one else has, there's a sense of pride that I can know something nobody else does. And people walk away from the gospel. We've seen it happen over and over again. Sometimes people walk away from the Lord because it's the allure of money and career and prowess. Now, it's not necessarily a conscious decision in the moment, but it's a million decisions to place your priorities where they don't need to be. And it's through spiritual drift of walking away from the Lord. And sometimes I see people enticed away from the Lord because they just, the pleasures of the flesh are just too great. They know what God's desire for their life is, and they know what their flesh desires, and they make that decision, I want this. And they walk away. Maybe you can identify. In your life, has there been seasons where you've made a choice to live apart from the Lord? Maybe you're in the midst of a season today where you're living in rebellion and you know it. Perhaps maybe even for some of you today, you're toying with the idea of saying, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. 
There might even be some of you in here who haven't ever fully committed to a life in Christ. You're checking out the claims of Christ, and you sense that there's truth to be found, but there's this allure of the world that's just pulling you in both directions. Let me warn you, and our text today is going to warn us that life apart from the Lord is no life at all. Life apart from the Lord is death. So as we go back to the text, let me, let me remind us of where we've been. Two weeks ago, we left off in the middle of Genesis chapter 4. Pastor Jeremy preached, and he walked us through the first 16 verses. And he let us see a lot of things in the text. But what we ended up kind of grappling with was just the staggering weight and implication of sin. Adam and Eve had their first two sons, a well-known passage. And, you know, the the words of God to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 are kind of on our mind. God said to the serpent, hey, you're going to have offspring, Eve, and and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so as Adam and Eve have these first two sons, they had to be wondering, which one is it? You know, God had said the serpent uh, would have his head crushed by one of their offspring. So as Adam and Eve are watching their sons play and and build forts and grow up together, they they had to have these conversations with one another about which one of our sons is going to be this promised seed that's going to redeem the mistakes that we've made. I imagine them, like many parents, having talks at night about their boys, speculating on what redemption will look like and how, how well their boys will succeed. And then one day, Cain walks in the house... And Eve says, where's your brother, Cain? And he's quiet, eerily quiet. Adam comes in and says, hey, Cain, where's your, where's your brother? Where's, your, where's Abel? Eerily quiet. And there's something in the room where they begin to get fearful. Eve says to her son, son, where, where is your brother? And they're, they're afraid. And as they look closely at Cain, he turns around and he's got blood on his hands and blood on his clothing. And and Eve just cries out, what is this you've done? And in a moment, their hope of redemption, their hope to see one of their boys be this promised seed is is dead. All All the hope they had put in their sons was dashed. And this was their reality. Their reality was that they had two sons. One was now dead and the other was his killer. One of the things Jeremy said to us two weeks ago, he says, our children make terrible redeemers. And he, he, he kind of exposed this tendency we sometimes have as parents to, to place our hope on our kids. We can unintentionally take our eyes off the hope we have in Jesus and place the hope on our kids that they will somehow be the things that we were not. It was a convicting teaching. And that leads us to where we, we pick up today in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in Nod, east of Eden. On the one hand, Cain was afraid to leave the Lord. And on the other hand, he was leaving by his own willful choice. Here's what one writer says. Cain had disdained contrition and now set himself to make some success of his independence. The ensuing account in the rest of Genesis chapter 4 gives us a first taste of a self-sufficient society, which is the essence of what the New Testament calls the world. And so as both a part of God's judgment and a part of his own choice, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And that's the title of my sermon today. Away from the presence of the Lord. And it's really the banner under which the rest of the text falls. What happens at this point informs what happens all the way through verse 25. This is all happening within a civilization that has willfully built apart from God. And so that's the first thing I would encourage you to write down if you're a note taker. Write down apart from the Lord. Dot, dot, dot. Apart from the Lord. And if you go to verse 26, the very last verse in our text today, it's interesting what we see happening after the birth of Cain and his son Enoch. We read in verse 26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
And so our text goes from Cain walking away from the presence of the Lord to, to, to Seth and his brothers living in a time when, when people are calling upon the name of the Lord. These are the bookends of our passage. And so what we're going to read today is this genealogy of Cain, this Cainite genealogy, and, and then what godless civilization, what the Cainite godless civilization looks like. And then next week, we're going to look at the Sethite genealogy, Seth and his, his, his offspring. And we're going to see that there is a line of faithfulness that makes its way through Seth's genealogy of this generation that calls upon the name of the Lord. But as we look at our passage today, here's the question that our text answers. What does a civilization look like that has left the presence of the Lord? What does a civilization look like that has left the presence of the Lord? Look with me here again back at Genesis, beginning in verse 19, right? Cain gets married. He starts a city. He has a bunch of, 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 of generations that come after him. And then the text slows down when we get to Lamech in verse 19. We read in verse 19 that Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zilha. Ada bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, who is the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And Zilha also bore Tubal-Cain, for he was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. As both part of God's own judgment and his own willful rebellion, here is Cain beginning a civilization apart from God. One, one commentator paints this vivid picture of Cain's leaving God. Listen to what he says. He says, Though Cain bore God's gracious mark of protection, he left Eden full of disdain and anger toward God. The taste of anger, bitter and sweet, mixed with blood, energized Cain. He would show God. He would show them all. His anger was electric and exhilarating. Molten energy shot through his veins. What a picture. And so off on his own, Cain goes setting his sights on creating a godless civilization. And in these short verses, we see both incredible cultural advancements, but we're going to look closely. We're going to see incredible cultural abuses. Here's the second thing I'd encourage you to write down. Apart from the Lord, godless culture rises. Apart from the Lord, godless culture rises. Cain left the Lord. In rebellion. So everything we see here has its origins in Cain's fierce anger towards God for rejecting his offering. At one point, God warned Cain, if you remember back in verse 7, he said, Cain, you're teetering, brother. Like, he, he says to him, the, the sin was crouching at its door and it was eager to devour Cain. That was the warning of God before the murder of Abel. But by now, sin has pounced and devoured Cain. Cain has given himself over to sin's control. As one scholar notes, he said, Cain's murder of his brother was in actuality a strike at God who had shown favor to Abel's offering, offering instead of his. And so his desire to build a city apart from God was born out of his own self-righteous independence and the smoldering hatred that Cain had for God. And so this self-centered, God-hating man goes out from the presence of the Lord. He chooses to live in the land east of Eden called Nod, which literally means wander. How ironic that when God spoke a judgment over Cain, he said, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so now Cain wanders in a land called wandering. And we see him taking a wife and having a son. He builds a city named after his son. It doesn't mean it was a metropolis. The, the Hebrew for city just simply means a guarded settlement. It could be great or small. And then in quick succession, we go through all these generations, and we end with Lamech. Lamech was the great, great, great grandson of Cain. His, Lamech's grandfather, his great, 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 great grandfather would have been Adam. 
And then we see the innovation of his boys, Jabel, Jubal, and Tabal Cain. And as we look at these verses, it's interesting because we see like great progress. We see the first city that's built. We see the offspring of Cain mastering animal husbandry. This is the science of breeding and caring for farm animals. We see the beginnings of music, the forging of metals. And here's a civilization that willfully set out to live apart from God, and yet we see them prospering. We see, we see material success. And as I read the text, and I'm looking at Cain who murdered his brother and had disdain for God and walks away in rebellion. If I was, if I was writing the book, I'd be like, no way is this guy going to prosper. He's going to get his. I would make it that he gets, he gets throttled. I would want to see him experiencing misery and suffering and judgment and pain. I'd want to make sure that Cain got what was coming to him. But what we see instead is that as Cain leaves God's presence, as he leaves in defiance, he prospers. I was taught that cheaters never win, that the, the bad guys should never prosper, but he does. In the face of reality, that godless civilization, it, it birthed these massive cultural advance, advances that enriched all of life. The arts, agriculture, technology. I'm reminded that nowhere in the scripture does it say that, that God only gives gifts to the godly. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain to the just and the unjust. And yet, as we look at these massive technological, cultural advancements in Cain's lineage, we see it also paired with tremendous moral failure. Even though there's prospering taking place, one commentator puts it this way, it was a dark prosperity. There is, there is a deep depravity in this civilization. If you look closely, you can see it. We begin to see that life apart from the Lord is death. Notice first what we see Lamech doing this great, great, great grandson of, of Cain. He takes two wives. Lamech takes two wives. This is the first example of polygamy that we see in the scriptures. And within a handful of generations, we see a perversion and a departure of God's design for marriage. We learned about marriage back in Genesis chapter 2. Remember verses 24 and 25? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. I was reminded this week that it is impossible to hold fast to two wives. Lamech took two wives. And we may even be given insight into why he chose two wives when we look at the name of these women that he married. One commentator points out that, that the name Ada means pleasure, ornament, or beauty. The name Zilha means shade, probably referring to a luxurious covering of hair. Even, even Lamech's daughter's name, Nema, means loveliness. So what does this say to us? What's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is that Lamech's culture was committed to physical and outward beauty. And in some pursuit, it gives, and in some sense, it gives us an insight into Lamech's heart, this godless man that, this, that the text focuses in on. It, it was a pursuit of status and pleasure, and so he marries two women. And this is no small thing. This institution of, of, of polygamy as a common practice, all the way in Genesis chapter 4, has devastating consequences. As you read through the book of Genesis, you'll see that polygamy is a devastating departure from God's design for marriage, and it has all these really ugly and unhealthy implications as the pages of Scripture unfold. So we can't skip over this. Even as this civilization is growing and developing, the first sign of degeneration is in this act of polygamy. Even as we see the civilization rise, we begin to see its demise. And then we read of the cultural advancements of Lamech's son. Super impressive. 
agriculture, the arts and technology, but there's an ominous cloud that hangs over these advancements as well. There's a shadow side of each of these good things that these sons of Lamech are, are developing. Certainly, agriculture and the arts and technology can be used for good, but they can also be twisted to become means of destruction and depravity and darkness. And we're reminded that no matter how amazing the advancements are, if it's done apart from God, it will lead to death. Take, for example, Lamech's third son, Tubal-Cain. The name Tubal means a ha- to hammer or to sharpen. Tubal-Cain, his, his thing that he brought to the world was that he was a, a forger of instruments of bronze and iron. But his name isn't just Tubal. It's not just hammer and sharpen. There's an appendage on his name, Tubal-Cain. He bears the name of his great-great-great-great-grandfather. And who, who was Cain? He was a murderer. The addition of Tubal's name creates a grim image. Tubal-Cain paints this picture of one who forges instruments of bronze and iron not only to make work easier, but to kill others. The dark side of Tubal-Cain's contribution to the Cainite civilization is that his technological advancements also included weapons of mass destruction. Life apart from the Lord is death. So this first godless Cainite civilization, if you just step back and think of the world around us, it is a microcosm. One commentator puts it this way, its pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. On the one hand, in our, in our context, think about nuclear technology, right? Technical prowess and moral failure. On the one hand, nuclear technology can generate life-saving power. It can be used in medical treatments that can bring life and healing. But it can also be the fuel of a weapon that can bring unimagined loss and destruction. Think about just the, the first, the crudest technology we can imagine, the ability to, to start fire. Fire, yes, it can, you can cook food, it can bring light, it can bring heat. But twisted, it can also bring tremendous destruction. As we look at these first pictures of a godless civilization, it really shouldn't surprise us. As we see the perversion and the redefinition of marriage in the first godless civilization, we look around at the world around us, what do we see? A redefinition and a perversion of God's design for marriage every day. As we see technological advancements that can be twisted for evil, we lift our eyes up, we look around us, that's all we see is the way technology can be twisted, whether it's technological advancements of of the internet or other technological advancements that can be twisted for negative and for evil. This world, as well as the Canaanite world, is and was living apart from God. Let me remind you, Christian, that we are not of this world. Do you remember the words of Paul in, in Romans 12, what he says about this world? Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is, this is kind of the great imperative of the letter to the Romans. For, for 11 chapters, Paul gives us this beautiful picture of who our God is. And then in chapter 12, he says, in light of all of this, of, of who God is and what he's done, here's, here's what it means to respond to him in faith. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on to say this in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You and I are not to live lives apart from God. In Christ, we've been invited to live lives with God. 
Certainly, Paul says earlier in the letter, the wages of sin is death. But he says the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so as we peer at this first godless civilization, we see that apart from God, a godless culture rises. Thank the Lord that, that our kingdom is not of this world. Amen? Let's go back to the text. Let's look at this, this, this poem that Lamech says to his wives, verses 23 and 24. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This poem has been called the, the Song of the Sword, and though the text doesn't put a sword in Lamech's hands, as he's bragging about murdering a boy, you can imagine him holding a sword that his son Tubal Cain had forged, covered in blood, bragging about the murder of a boy. These two verses personify the godless Cainite civilization. Lamech is terrorizing his wives. He's wielding unbridled and violent power. He's bragging about murdering a young boy. He's implying that God will avenge anyone who tries to stop his reign of terror. I heard a couple scholars say something like this. Like, if you look at just the, the, the way in which sin has just spiraled down within these two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 3, you see that Eve has to be talked into her sin by Satan himself. By the beginning of chapter 4, God himself can't talk Cain out of his sin. And by the end of chapter 4, you have Lamech arrogantly boasting of his sin. You see the downward, depraved uh, cycling of humanity into this, this, this abyss of sin and depravity. But God, didn't God say that, that Adam and Eve would have a seed that would crush the head of the serpent? Can you imagine? If you're observing this, you've got to be thinking to yourself, it seems like the more offspring that are born, the further away the hope of a, of a, of a head-crushing seed becomes. Rather than crushing the head of Satan, it seems as if humanity is joining Satan in depraving and perverting the world around them. The song of Lamech is the personification of utter depravity. And here's a third thing I encourage you to write down. Apart from the Lord, depraved humanity revels. Apart from the Lord, depraved humanity revels. What is the result of a rising godless civilization? Well, it's, it's reveling in godlessness. To revel is to enjoy oneself in a lively and noisy way, especially with drinking and dancing. That's exactly what Lamech's doing here. He's drunk on power. He's flaunting his unbridled depravity. He's daring anyone to do something about it. He's reveling. The sword song of, of Lamech is this dark illustration of a deeply, deeply depraved culture that has utterly shut God out. Can you imagine shouting proudly about the murder of another? Well, it's not that hard to imagine. I think of the smiling white faces gathered around the lynching tree. I think of the shout your abortion activists with blowhorns across our country. Our culture is accustomed to dancing on graves. Not only is Lamech bragging about the murder he committed, but especially it's troubling when you see it was a boy who, who wounded him, who bruised him. Someone bumped into his shoulder in the hallway and he killed him for it and he brags about it. Lamech is wearing this violent bloodshed as a badge. He was a remorseless, carnivorous man. Notice who his song is directed toward. His wives. It's not enough that he's humiliated them through polygamy. 
Now he's flaunting his bloody hands, taunting his terrified wives. Don't you dare question me, woman. I have the power in this relationship. Don't you forget about it. I'm mindful of the the judgment oracle God spoke over Eve in Genesis 3, chapter 16. Your desire shall be for your husbands, and he shall rule over you. This is the utter, the worstest, the worst outworking of that judgment oracle possible. Lamech is a tyrannical, abusive, murderous, abusive man who's terrifying and terrorizing his wives. We see how quickly this civilization spirals into utter depravity in just a few generations. He was a bad dude. Can you imagine a culture that revels in depravity and godlessness? Yeah, it's not hard, is it? In Milwaukee, my office, when I lived, looked over the Miller Brewing Company. And uh, it's crazy how accustomed we've become to mass shootings in our society. Just of, of, of the homicides. And looking over Miller Brewing about a year ago, uh, the news started to break one day. I got a text from a friend of mine who's in law enforcement. He's like, hey, don't go over to State Street. Uh, active shooter situation. So news starts to break that five people were hunted down and killed in the brewery. Um, a lot of our church members went there and were in the brewing union. And, and then as the, as the days unfolded, it was shocking to our community that, that, that a man had gone to work and hunted down five specific people and murdered them. And then he killed himself, as many of these murder-suicides go. And it's like... We've become so accustomed to hearing mass shootings that even when it was in my own backyard, I thought, why is this not more shocking to me? And then I got invited as a chaplain to go be a part of, of, of the kind of recovery and the care that was taking place to these employees. And I got to sit with all these breweries, these brewery employees who had worked with both the victims and the shooter. And you could just see just the depravity, the, the horror, the terror that this inflicted on them. And I'm thinking, it's not hard for me to imagine a, a, a culture that revels in depravity and godlessness. It's everywhere that we look. Not just in the homicides, but it's in the sexually perverse pornification of our culture. It's in the violence in our cities across this country. It's, it's in the depravity, frankly, that we see right now in the, in the language of the Equality Act. It's in legislation. It's in the unabashed hatred that is so commonplace in political discourse. We live in the midst of a godless civilization. We are not to be in this world or of this world. We're to be in the world, but as Christians, we're called to not be of it. Remember the words of Paul. And so the, the challenge for me, and maybe you've experienced this, is when I see godless things pridefully parading in public, purposefully provoking. When I see this, I, it understandably creates angst within your soul. It's appropriate to be grieved by godlessness and by, and by willful sin, even when it's committed by an unbelieving secular culture. But if you're like me, it's also easy to let that righteous indignation manifest into something wholly different within your own soul. Something ugly and equally deplorable. It's easy to fall into the trap and let hate take root in our hearts. I heard a Christian brother say last week he wishes he could get away with murdering Nancy Pelosi. He said he would do it in a second. And I thought, is that what we should be talking about as Christians? Plotting the murder of a political opponent? Mm. I had another friend on social media who um, celebrated the death of Rush Limbaugh. Christian brother. I'm like, really? Is that where we've gone? I know that's in me, but is that where we've gone? Is the church. There's not that much difference between the godless politician who pushes the godless agenda and the angry, bitter individual who spews murderous anger toward a politician. 
Pastor Mitch reminded me this week in our sermon process that, that um, the grace of God, but by the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, we'd all be like Lamech. We'd all be bragging about our murder. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle John, who really echo the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. First John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, John writes, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's a hard text. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's hard to hear. But then John goes on to say this, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. See, if we're not careful, we can become a murderer in our hatred. And we can join Lamech and Lamech's song. Lamech boasts, I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. Jesus turns the words of Lamech on its head. He's talking to Peter in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Disciples of Jesus are to give and are to forgive without keeping count. Jesus is reversing the vengeful boast of, of Lamech in this command. And he's turning it into humble love. And then he modeled humble love. Do you remember as Christ was hanging on the cross, his murderers shouting insults at him, the ones that nailed him to the cross, his accusers, his executioners. Remember what he said to them? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Here's here's my concern, and I've seen this lived out so often in the lives of others, is that unforgiveness will kill you. Unforgiveness will become a bitter cancer that will kill you. And I can share a thousand examples. Let me tell you one. In Milwaukee, I had a friend, full-time ministry. Partnered, went to my church, was a friend, was a brother, hung out. I believed in the work he did. I partnered with him in his ministry. And then one day I get a phone call from a cop friend of mine. They're investigating a heinous sexual crime against children. And he says the name of my friend who's in full-time ministry as their primary investigative target. Turns out, my good friend, for years had been grooming and sexually abusing the very kids he was ministering to. I was angry. I felt betrayed. I was so mad at this man. I wanted him to burn. But I thought, no, this, I can't let this live in my heart. I can't, this is, I can't hate him. I can't do this. This is not what, is there consequences to his sin? Yes. Should I hate my, this, this man? No. And I remember that he was a part of a large ministry that had lots of staff members and somehow, some way like 30 people ended up gathering in my office in the aftermath of this news breaking. Of course, it was a salacious local story in the news. And all the people that worked closely with this man gathered, and you could just see this this temptation to, to plunge off the cliff of hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness towards this man who had done unspeakable things. And we talked and processed and tried our very best to keep our eyes in Jesus, believing that forgiveness of another is the outworking of the gospel in our own lives. For he who has been forgiven much learns to forgive much. My friend's in prison. He's facing the consequences for what he did. But maybe as you examine your life, maybe there's some here that are having a difficult time offering forgiveness. Let me remind you that forgiveness is not for the offender. The benefit of forgiveness is not for the person who hurt you. The benefit of forgiveness is for your own heart. It's, it's, it's you learning to entrust that, that offense to God. It's, it's, it's you letting go 
of the, of the anger and the hatred and the bitterness and, and laying it at the foot of the cross and saying, this is not mine to own. I've been victimized. I've been wounded. I've been hurt. I'm not going to let this cause me to hate and to create murder in my own heart. And so as soon as Lamech's song is over, so is he. We don't hear from him again, but we're reminded that life apart from the Lord is death. Away from the presence of the Lord or apart from the Lord, we see a godless culture rising. We see depraved humanity reveling. And very quickly, let's look at the last two verses. Verses 25 and 26. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, a son was born. He called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Here's the, the last thing I want you to simply write down. Apart from the Lord, his faithfulness remains. Apart from the Lord, his faithfulness remains. This, this blessing of Seth it speaks to the steadfast, undaunted faithfulness of God to do what he said he would do. Your seed, your offspring, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. Seth is that offspring that creates the line. And Luke 3 tells us, Seth leads us right to Jesus. Listen, we cannot forget who this text is about. It's easy when we read high human drama, murder, and characters like Lamech. It's easy to, 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 to think that this, this is about the people. But, but who is this chapter really about? Who is the book of Genesis really about? What is the, who is the entire Bible about? It might be easy for us to look at the exploits and the successes and failures and the sensational storylines around the, the biblical characters because it's gripping. There's drama that's, that's unfolding in the foreground, right? In the foreground, there's conniving serpents and rebellious humans and an envious murderous brother. There's this rise of a godless civilization. There's this, this a braggadocious song of, of a killer. And it might be easy for us to let our eyes fall upon the foreground in these human stories and forget that there is a vast, unchanging background to all of this that is always present and unchanging. I recently watched the, the movie The Chronicles of Narnia, and it reminded me when I was a third grade teacher like 20 years ago, 21 years ago. I taught third grade for one year in public schools. I was a horrible teacher. But when the kids came in, I would read books, and that was the one thing I did well. So I read The Chronicles of Narnia one year, and these kids would like beg. I'd read one chapter. Oh, please, Mr. Stevens, please don't stop. And as I, as I read the stories of Chronicles of Narnia, it's, it's similar. There's amazing stories unfolding as Peter and Lucy and Edmund and, and Susan live these incredible lives and do these incredible things. But on every page of the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that the book is ultimately about Aslan. Everything plays out and points us to Aslan, if you're familiar with the storyline. As we read Genesis chapter 4 or any page of Genesis, every page is about God. Every page. In the foreground, yes, there's human drama. In the background is the truth of a sovereign God who has enacted a plan to redeem humankind. And every now and again, we get a glimpse. Verse 26, we get a glimpse. Verse 25, we get a glimpse. The line continues, and then people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. We see revival. Away from the presence of the Lord or apart from God, a godless culture rises, depraved humanity revels, and his faithfulness remains. Apart from the Lord is death, but in the presence of the Lord is life. I want to finish with you just going back to a text Pastor Jeremy preached two weeks ago. Go back to verse 10 with me, <clears throat> with me if you would. <clears throat> In verse 10, as the Lord is talking to Cain after murdering his brother, the Lord says, what have you done? 
the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's what the Lord said to Cain. What is the voice of blood saying? What is the voice of Abel's blood saying? What is it crying out? What is it saying to God? Well, Abel's blood was speaking a word of judgment, of guilt, of punishment, of justice. And these are right words spoken by a righteous God over sin. Judgment is, the, is a right word. Cain was guilty of sin and he was deserving of punishment. And Abel's blood spoke that word of punishment. Like Cain, you and I are also guilty. But there's a new word that's being spoken over us. Because if we go to Seth and we fast forward to Jesus, there's a new blood that speaks a new thing in the New Testament. This is the voice of the new covenant that speaks a word of salvation, that speaks a word of forgiveness. It is in the death of Jesus that we find life. His blood is speaking life over us today. God is speaking life through Christ's blood. He's saying life is to be had here. Sinners can be saved. Thanks be to God. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, like we're going to do in a few minutes, it's us sitting under the banner of this life-speaking voice that the blood of Jesus speaks over us. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the opportunity you've given us on this day to gather in this place. God, to open up your word, to hear your voice, God. To be reminded that even if a godless civilization spirals out of control, God, if in the foreground of human life there is a heartbreaking abuses and death and depravity and sinfulness, God, the, the, the background is ever steady, never changing, always true. You are the God who has been, who always will be. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are Redeemer God who will have your way. And so, God, I pray that, that our temptation at times is to, is to drop our eyes and get caught up in the minutia of the foreground. God, fix our eyes on you today. God, remind us of the truth today. That, Jesus, you went to the cross. You allowed your blood to be spilled. And in so doing... You speak a new word over us in this place today. That in and through the work of Christ, in and through his, his life, his atoning death, his shed blood, his, his resurrection, that, that forgiveness is to be had, new life is to be found, salvation is offered. And so God, as we prepare our hearts right now to, to partake of the Lord's Supper, God, would you do whatever you've got to do in our hearts that we would take it in a worthy manner. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.